0: The human brain is capable of some amazing and fascinating things. You think about the ability the mind has to store up information and particularly store memories. I read this week that we can store nearly 1 million gigabytes of memories in our minds. That's something like 300 million hours of television stored in your mind. That's a lot of Netflix stored in your mind. But what's also fascinating about our ability to remember things and to store information is how quickly we can forget that information. Why do I bring this up? What's, What's the point of this? Well, you know as well as I do that we struggle to remember things. We forget things all the time in life. We forget small, simple things. We forget our keys, our phone, or maybe something a little bigger, an appointment or a meeting or something like that. But we also struggle to remember things of spiritual significance, uh, important things that we've read and learned and know about God and who He is and how He saved us through the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we tend to forget those things. And so the passage we're going to look at this morning has to do with some reminders for us, reminders as we forget things. So we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, if you want to turn to Titus chapter 3 this morning. And we'll be looking at four reminders to Christians as they're living among unbelievers. Four reminders to Christians as they're living among unbelievers. And before we read the passage, I just want to disclaimer here Little side note, I did not pick the passage because of what it says in verse one. That will make sense in a moment. I'm just want you to know that. I picked it because of three through eight. Verse one's in the context, so we're gonna look at it. But I didn't pick it because of that. So Titus chapter three, verses one through eight. We'll look at four reminders to Christians living among unbelievers. Let's look and read the whole passage, and then we'll look through those reminders together. Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The first reminder we have in this passage is found in the first two verses, and it is to remember to be godly citizens and neighbors. To remember to be godly citizens and neighbors. Perhaps a little context and background here might help us a little bit with these verses and the text as a whole. Paul and Titus were in Crete and they were proclaiming the gospel there, evangelizing and churches were forming as new believers were converted. Paul left Crete and Titus was left behind there to finish the work that they had started. And then Paul writes to Titus in this letter that we have this morning, And he writes to him to wrap things up, finish things up. He's to appoint leaders in the churches. He's to address the false teachers that are trying to infiltrate the churches. And then finally, what we have this morning in our text, he's also to encourage the Christians in their conduct. He's to encourage them in their behavior as Christians, the way they live in Crete. Now, Crete is an interesting place. We have in the book of Titus, information about what the people of Crete were like. One writer says that Crete had an ethically unhealthy cultural atmosphere. Crete had an ethically unhealthy cultural atmosphere. We read in the letter that Paul wrote to Titus that Cretans were insubordinate. They were deceptive. They were liars, evil beasts. They were gluttons. They were defiled They were unbelieving, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They were divisive, they were warped, they were sinful, they were condemned. And in our passage, they were fools who were malicious, envious, filled with hate. That is an ethically unhealthy cultural atmosphere. Paul is writing to Titus and saying, the Christians in Crete, they need to remember that they live among unbelievers they live among unbelievers and they need to remember as they live among those unbelievers first thing to be godly citizens and neighbors he's reminding them how they ought to conduct themselves in regards to these two groups in the first two verses now if it's a reminder it's something they already know it's something they've already heard this is not new information for the Christians in Crete, but they apparently need to be reminded of this. So he begins in verse 1 by reminding them to be godly citizens. Look at verse 1 again. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So as they're living in Crete and they're living amongst unbelievers, there are undoubtedly unbelievers who are leading and ruling. And sometimes that can be a challenge to live in a place where there are unbelievers leading and ruling. And Paul wants them to remember that they are to be submissive. They are to be obedient. It's a reminder. They already know these things. Paul wrote this elsewhere in Romans chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Peter writes about it in first Peter chapter two, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution It's not in our scope this morning to parse all of this out and to uh, address all of these issues and solve all of your questions and my questions on this matter. Um, But we can know that it is good and it is right as Christians to be those who are godly citizens to be those who are submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. These things are true and right and good for us to be reminded of as Paul is reminding the Christians in Crete. At the end of verse 1, he starts to move into reminding them how they act and behave towards others, just not rulers only, but towards others around them. He says, to be ready for every good work. And that certainly does apply to the way that they are submissive and obedient to the leaders. But also then moving into verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So they're to be prepared and willing to do every good work that they have the opportunity to do so as they're relating not only to leaders and those who are ruling over them they're to be reminded of how they think about and how they act towards their attitudes and behaviors towards others unbelievers particularly but everyone and he says we're to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling now you and i can probably imagine what they're experiencing and you know what it's like to know unbelievers, to live amongst unbelievers. Sometimes it's difficult to live among unbelievers. And Sometimes we struggle with that because they're unbelievers and they're acting like unbelievers. They're acting according to their sinful nature. And that can be a challenge. It can upset us. Maybe they're Morals are things we wouldn't approve of or what they stand for and what they promote and advocate for, things we don't like. And that's a struggle. And here, Paul's reminding Titus and the Cretans and us to speak evil of no one. When we think of those kinds of people, sometimes we begin to think low of them, think low, lowly thoughts about them, to think more highly of ourselves. And to look down upon them. Even maybe to say things about them we ought not to. And Paul here says to speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. And then on the positive side, to be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. All people. Not just the ones you pick and choose. All people. And it's a perfect courtesy. Meaning it's the complete, full, not a a partial courtesy. Courtesy. There might be someone that you're struggling to uh, live among as they're an unbeliever, and there's a struggle there, and it's difficult to like them and live among them. And sometimes you think, you know, if you would just do this a little bit differently, then maybe I would be kind of kind and generous to you. He's saying, no, it's the full scope of being courteous, generous. He says we're to be peaceable, we're to be uncontentious, we're to be gentle, humble, meek, and considerate, not those who are A rough people who are filled with anger and disposed to sudden outbursts of anger towards others. One writer about this passage says that the believers in Crete thought that the ungodly people that they live among were worthless and did not deserve forbearance. So Paul is correcting such severity, which he knows only leads to pride. And I think he's right. Sometimes we Think too highly of ourselves as we compare ourselves to others. I'm a Christian. I don't struggle with those things. I don't do those things. I would never say that. I wouldn't be about that. What are you doing? You're thinking lowly of them. You're thinking too highly of yourself. You're becoming prideful. And it's a struggle for us as Christians as we live among unbelievers. And here there's a reminder for us. Remember to be godly citizens and godly neighbors. So you very well may live among a whole host of Cretans. But our calling as Christians is to be those who think and behave in this way toward them. So then he moves into his second reminder for us. We find this in verse 3. He says, remember who you were before Christ. That's the reminder to us. Remember who you were before Christ. So as you live among these unbelievers, as you engage with them and live among them, Remember who you were before Christ. Look with me at verse 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So why the reminder, Paul? Why the reminder to be godly citizens and neighbors? Because you were just like them. That was you before Christ. That's who you were. We ourselves, he says, we likewise. And then he goes on to describe the nature of the sinful heart and the way that plays itself out. We have to have an understanding of man in our sinful nature as we engage with others. He says, you too once were foolish you were without spiritual understanding you were a fool lost in your sin you were disobedient not only just to others around you or authorities and rulers but to God you were disobedient to God led astray deceived by your sin loving your sin pursuing sins of all kinds slaves to various passions and pleasures you were malicious and envious you couldn't bear to see anyone prosper, anything good happen to someone else. You're filled with hate, hated by others and hating one another. It's a reminder to us of who we once were before Christ saved us. And it's an important reminder because we forget and we begin to think highly of ourselves. Think we're something special maybe. And Paul says, don't forget don't forget Romans eleven thirty. He says for just as you were at one time disobedient to God in Colossians 1. He writes in you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's who we once were. Ephesians 2 serves as a great parallel passage to this passage in Titus 3. And it says, and you were dead in your trespasses in sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These unbelievers you live among, he's saying, they're still in that spiritual state, that spiritual condition. It's a healthy dose of humility for us. I read verses like this and it's good to be reminded of who I once was before Christ. For some, it may be, it's been a long time and it's difficult to remember. Paul wants us to remember. You know, sometimes you're struggling to relate to an unbeliever and you start to think highly of yourself. You can stop and say, Mike, what makes you so special? What makes you different? You yourself once were lost in sin. So the question comes, what makes the difference? And how can I possibly show perfect courtesy towards others, particularly unbelievers? You say, Mike, this is super heavy. Goodness. Ease up a bit. We don't like to feel that, that guilt, that weight of sin. But it's good for us to be reminded of these things. Paul says, remember, be godly citizens and godly neighbors. And remember who you once were. So what makes the difference? How can we do these things? That's where we come to the next reminder that Paul gives to us. Remember by God's grace who you are in Christ. Remember by God's grace who you are in Christ. We'll get verses four through seven. Just after he's been reminding us of our sinful condition, that we are fools and disobedient, verse four he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Some have said that these few verses may very well be one of the most full, complete treatments of the gospel in the such a small amount of verses, we see the amazing work of our great triune God in salvation, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in saving us. This whole section centers on three words at the beginning of verse 5, He saved us. He saved us. And we'll see in these four verses the goodness of our salvation in Christ, We look at verse 4. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. You consider who we were, lost in sin, without hope. But the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. What does he mean by appeared? Well, it's when Christ came. And his life, death, and resurrection for those who will believe. Earlier in Titus... Chapter 2, verse 11, speaking of this appearing, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And elsewhere in Second Timothy, chapter 1, Paul, writing about this appearing, says, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. So this appearing, this goodness and loving kindness of God appearing is the person and work of Jesus Christ. When he comes in his incarnation to take on human flesh and blood in the likeness of mankind. Why? So that he might represent us before a holy God. We see God's goodness, his loving kindness on display, demonstrated, manifested through Christ and the gospel. Think of John 3.16. Such a well-known verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's saying the implication is, for God so loved the world in this way. Here's how God loved the world. He sent his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is how God loved us, by sending Christ. Romans 5, verse 8 says, But God shows or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, remember who you were. You were disobedient fools. You were enemies of God. You were filled with hate. Pursuing your sin, malicious, envious. But God showed his love in this way by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. One writer says that God's love in Christ has burst forth on the horizon and you are no longer who you once were. Oftentimes, I think it's helpful when we're considering what Christ has done for us in the gospel and how we are saved. Then we can see how that applies to areas of life. And here, think about those unbelievers we live among and the Cretans here living among. They're difficult to get along with, difficult to live with. And sometimes our response to them, our actions toward them are to think low of them, to speak ill of them, to think highly of ourselves here, consider the way God responds to us in our sinful state, our sinful condition. His goodness, His loving kindness appears in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then he continues on in verse five, says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Which he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here at the beginning of verse 5, when he says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. He's without a shadow of a doubt, rejecting the idea that we could do anything to save ourselves. There is nothing, he says, that you could do in righteousness to earn God's favor, to earn salvation, lest you think as one who's lost and in sin you can work your way out of it and appease God's wrath and earn His favor and be reconciled to Him. It's not going to happen. That's not how this works. He saved us not by works done in righteousness. Paul writes in Romans three, apart. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or in Galatians 2, Paul writes, Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We are called by God and commanded to live a life of personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. It's all the time. Every bit of it, never failing. And we all know that we sin, we fail. We don't live up to the standard that God requires of us. And so we can never attain to this righteousness that God requires of us. And that's why it's all of God, he says. But God, he saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according or because of his own mercy. It's all his doing through Christ, his son, who would come to perfectly obey all of God's commands for those who will believe. And that obedience leads him to death on the cross where he would pay the penalty for sins of those who would believe. And he was buried and he raised again three days later for our justification. It's all of God. It's nothing about us that would cause our salvation. And as we consider others around us, unbelievers around us, we consider, if it's all of God, there's nothing about me that makes me savable. There's nothing about me that makes me lovable. Why would I expect differently of others? You know, if you could just do this, I'll love you, or I'll be kind and generous. We see the generous grace and mercy that God shows us in his son, and we can extend that same grace to others you say oh but how 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 can we do that well he continues on look at verse 5 continuing on but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit whom he poured out on us richly through jesus christ our savior you see as jesus christ accomplishes our redemption The Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to us. Here in verse 5, with the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, he's highlighting this inner transforming work of the Spirit in us. I think back to Ephesians 2. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, are now made alive together with Christ. How does that happen? By the Holy Spirit applying the work of Christ to us. Washing of regeneration, the spiritual cleansing, regeneration, this new life, new birth, new creation. Remember who you were and now see who you are in Christ. It's only by the washing of regeneration, the new life, who you were, has changed because of the spirit applying the work of Christ to you. Think of John chapter three, where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get it, but Jesus is speaking of spiritual realities of being born again. That's what we're talking about here. The Holy spirit, the washing of regeneration, new life, new birth in Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27 it says and I this is God I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you it's God's doing the work of the spirit in us Paul writes in 2nd Corinthians 5 that Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new birth, new life. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So, as the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, has accomplished redemption. It's applied to us by the work of the Spirit. and He pours out the Spirit, it says, richly, lavishly, abundantly on us. As the Lord Jesus has accomplished the work he was set out to do, He sends the Spirit whom He promised to send. So to what end is that salvation? Verse 7. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. So here we have a purpose. We're saved for this reason that we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are those who have been justified, those who have been declared righteous, not because of our doing, we already said, but because of the work of Christ for us. And now we have a new standing before God, a new standing before him. And in that new standing, there's hope. There's hope of eternal life. It's an expectation of what is to come. And it's a sure hope because it's based on what Christ has done, not what we have done. It's a sure hope. In the first chapter, in the first two verses of Titus, Paul is writing about this and he says, In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. It's a sure hope, a promise that we can be sure of. So as we're considering how can we do these things, how can we? Be godly citizens. How can we be godly neighbors? How can we love others and be generous and to show perfect courtesy, be gentle people? Well, it's because of our great salvation. It's because of the work of the Spirit to give us new life and new birth. And then it's that renewing work, that sanctification in our life as we're continually transformed into the image of Christ, our Savior. The work of the Spirit enables us, strengthens us helps us to love others, to be kind, to be generous, to be humble. That's how we can do these things. Well, then there's a fourth and final reminder we see in verse 8, and that reminder is to remember to do good works. Remember to do good works. Verse 8 says, The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So this saying that he's talking about is this gospel proclamation that he's made in these verses before, that when we're lost in our sin, the goodness and loving kindness of God comes and he saves us through Christ. It's applied to us through the Spirit. This saying is trustworthy. It's good. It's right. And I want you to insist on these things, he says to Titus. Insist on them. Speak confidently about these things to the Cretans, the Christians there. Why, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So remember, he says, to do good works. This is kind of a a bookend with the beginning two verses, if you will. Remember in the first two verses, we had that we were called to be godly citizens and neighbors and how we ought to live and act towards others. And now here at the very end, there's that reminder again to do good works, which example of would be godly citizens and neighbors. So there's bookends happening here. And in the middle, you find the gospel. And he's saying, as heirs and children of God who have been Saved and given the Holy Spirit, you can, because of God's enabling, do good works. And we bring up good works, sometimes it's a little bit of a head scratch. You say, okay, we talked about good works, you said that's not anything to earn God's favor. Even now that we're saved, our good works don't earn anything with God. Well, that's as salvation is concerned. So when we talk about good works, now we're talking about as those who are saved. Notice, the emphasis on those who have believed in God. He doesn't say, so remind them to devote devote themselves to good works so that they might be saved. No, he says, for those who are saved, remind them to devote themselves to good works. Be about good works. Busy yourself with good works. Not so that you can be saved, not so that you can maintain your salvation, but as a response to God for who he is and what he has done for us in Christ. Back to that parallel passage, Ephesians chapter two, after he said, by grace, we've been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing, lest anyone should boast. In verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created, that's new birth talk, regeneration created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved so that we might do good works. Ezekiel 36 referenced earlier. He says, And I, God again, will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God, when he gives us this new heart by the work of Christ applied to us through the spirit, says he will cause us to be able to walk in his statutes. He will cause us to be able to do these good works by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in us as we're renewed. You see, our relationship to God's law, his commands, changes. So when he says, remember who you once were, your relationship to God and his law in your state of being lost and sinful is that which you must obey his law to earn eternal life. But knowing that we could never attain to that, we have faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us. And now our relationship to God's law is different. It's no longer that we do things so that we might earn eternal life. It's because we have life in Christ that we do things. We do good works. We honor him with our life. We give him thanks. We worship him as we seek to obey his commands. It's how we respond to him. I think the passage as a whole is, it's helpful to sum it up with three words that I'm sure you've heard, and they're helpful because they help us remember these things. And those three words are guilt, grace, and gratitude guilt, grace, and gratitude. This is how people have for many years remembered these things. We experience that guilt of our sin, our sinful nature, our condition before God, before Christ. And that's what Paul's reminding of us here. Remember who you once were, the guilt before a holy God who requires perfect righteousness. And you feel the weight of that and the inability you have to reconcile yourself to God by your own doing. And then you are reminded of the grace that you've been shown through the Lord Jesus Christ, that God's goodness and loving and kindness would appear and he would save us by his own mercy through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And the Holy Spirit would apply the work of Christ so that when God looks at us, he sees righteous life of Christ. And as we're reminded of the great grace we've experienced in Christ, we're filled with gratitude, guilt, grace, gratitude. And that gratitude propels us and enables us to do good works, to honor him with our life of obedience. As we say, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, what you have done through your son. That me, we who once were lost, Are now in Christ, and we can do these things to say thank you, to be grateful, to worship you. Francis Turretin, when he is speaking of God's grace and writing about it, he says, "The greater it is, speaking of grace, the greater this grace is, the more effectually it obliges us to gratitude." So, the greater God's grace is, the more effectually it obliges us to gratitude. I cannot think of a greater grace than the grace of God shown to us through Christ. So as we remember in our life, guilt, grace, gratitude, guilt, grace, gratitude, let's be a grateful people. Let's be people who are thankful for what God has done for us in Christ. And then seek to do good works in a way that we can honor him and give him thanks. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your great grace that you have shown us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful that we who were fools, who were disobedient, who were led astray, without hope, have been granted salvation merely because it pleased you to do so, not because about anything in us would earn your favor. Thank you, Lord, that Christ would come to live and die and rise again for those who would believe. That your spirit applies his work to us and enables us and gives us the strength to do good works. Lord, help us not to be a prideful and arrogant people, but a grateful people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.